Thank you for listening to this teaching from Table Church. We're in a series called 365 Forgiveness, where we're learning that forgiveness is not just a one-time event, but a lifestyle. We're glad that you're joining us as we look at one of the most world-changing ideas imaginable. And as always, if you need anything, don't hesitate to reach out at hello at tablechurchdsm.org. Enjoy. Good morning. Our scripture today comes from Genesis. If you don't have a Bible, um, go ahead and raise your hand. The ushers would be happy to bring you one. And if you don't have one at home, we'd love for you to take this home. So Genesis 50, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays, pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Good morning, everybody. My name is Phil Wiseman. I'm the lead pastor here at Table Church. And uh, thank you for coming. If you're new here today, please be sure to stop by the Welcome Center. That's the table up on top of the stairs there in the lobby. We've got a gift we'd love to give you. And we also just want to be able to say hello. So thank you so much for coming and visiting us at Table Church Today, we are actually concluding a sermon series today on forgiveness. It's called 365 Forgiveness. And the whole idea has been, you know, how do we live lives of forgiveness all the time? Not just kind of a one-time moment that you do, a one-time thing that you do, but rather a life that exudes the grace of forgiveness. Um, Now, preaching on forgiveness is a little bit tricky. I would liken it to the game Operation. You know, where you got the tweezers and you're trying to extract the bone, and if you go a little bit to the right or to the left, it's like, eh. you know, because we're talking about some really, really tender, uh, some difficult, some, I don't know, you know, very personal things sometimes with this, aren't we? Like, we, we've got some, many of us have some deep wounds, some things that people have done to us, and when, when preachers start talking about forgiveness, it's kind of, okay, where are, we, where are we going with this, you know what I mean? And, um, and so I'm cognizant of that, and... Um, and I also realize that sometimes uh, it is easy to, to go a little too far to the right or to the left. I mean, on the one hand, we can, we can make too much light of forgiveness sometimes. Like, it just becomes pretending, play-acting, you know, to, just to kind of look like I'm vir- virtuous. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, oh, yeah, 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 sure, I, I forgive you, and poof, it's supposed to be gone. But that's not how it works, is it? When we do this, we miss out on the deep freedom that can come through Christ. And then on the other hand, we can, we can make light of the wrongs that were done. Sometimes uh, preachers have been guilty of this as well, where we try to hurry people into this, maybe even like pushing them back into a space with the person that heard them when they're not ready for that, or maybe when it's not even appropriate or safe, and that's a problem as well. And, and so what this means is that my goal in these sermons is not to tell you what to do, I'm not here to tell you what to do today, and hopefully that's never what I'm trying to do. I mean, honestly, some of these things that folks have gone through, these are best kind of talked through in one-on-one situations. 
And that's the disadvantage of preaching as a form of communication. I can't differentiate on a case-by-case basis. Y'all are hearing the same thing, you know. But there is an advantage to preaching. The advantage, I believe, of preaching, if done well, like if I'm doing my job well, is that hopefully we're opening up a space where you can hear God speak. You know, like we're going to dig into the texts, into the scriptures today, and hopefully this opens a space where you can start to hear what God might have for you specifically. And so your job today is not really even to listen to me, it's to listen to God and to see what God might have to say. My prayer today is that those of us who have been beaten and banged up and left high and dry, that you'll hear the gospel, that it would begin a conversation with God where you can perhaps start to discern his path, his wisdom, and his healing for you. The book of Genesis, which you just heard from today, gives more time to this guy named Joseph than it does to any other character. It gives more time to Joseph than, any other, than, than other heavy hitters like Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Jacob. And the passage that you heard read today is not only the culmination of Joseph's narrative, but I think we could call it the culmination of the book of Genesis. Joseph is the son of a guy named Jacob. Jacob is also called Israel. This gets a little confusing. Jacob, Israel, same guy. He also has 11 brothers, and most of them really don't like Joseph. And frankly, it's a little bit hard to blame them, because here's how we're introduced to Joseph. It says, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, and he brought their father a bad report about them. In other words, Joseph was a snotty little tattletale. Now Israel, remember that's Jacob, his father, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. So what we have here is probably some serious like family trauma going on, you know what I mean? Like you got this brother who's dad's favorite, apparently dad has no problems with making ridiculously public displays of his affection and his favoritism, makes him this, this nice robe, gives it to Joseph. And all the brothers just have to sit there and take it. To make matters worse, Joseph has these dreams uh, where he comes to his brothers and his mom and dad. He's like, hey, guys, I had this dream. I, I don't know. But, um, you know, we we're all like binding together some, some wheat. And you know what? My bundle of wheat was bigger than everyone else's. And it stood up. And then your wheat bowed down to my wheat. I can't explain it. And then he comes to another one. He says, hey, okay, mom and dad, brothers, it's just the craziest thing. I had this dream. Like the sun and the moon and 11 stars, believe it or not, were bowing down to me. Weird, isn't it? And so it's at this point now that uh, his brothers are like, okay, Joseph's got to go. And so they make a plot to kill him in what we might call a slight overreaction. It says, here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. <laughs> now, okay, here's what I like about the Bible. Um, one of the things I like about the Bible. Uh, this, we get this wrong sometimes. The Bible is not saying Joseph good, brothers bad. It's not making it that black and white and cut and dry for us here. It's, it's not like Joseph is the hero. 
we should do what Joseph did. The point of the story is not copy Joseph, okay? And don't copy the brothers. Joseph's far from perfect. I mean, I don't think he deserves this, but he's far from perfect, you know? And so the Bible often, in these narratives, in the Old Testament especially, like we, what, we're, what it's doing is it's kind of drawing out the messiness, the imperfection of, of the characters, because the point is not the characters. The point is not their actions or who they are that we should copy them. The point is what God is doing often in the background, often implicitly, as we're going to see today. See, the point of the story is not, well, Joseph's good and you should do what he does. It's that God's purposes will come to pass even out of the messiness and the wickedness of humans. The point of Genesis from verse 1 to the end is that God is sovereign and that he is faithful to his promises. No matter how hard we try to screw him up, he is faithful to his promises. So luckily for Joseph, some travelers are passing by. His brothers realize, you know what? Instead of killing him, we could actually make a little money, you know? And so they pull him out of the cistern, and they sell him into slavery. So Joseph is eventually purchased by a guy named Potiphar, and uh, he is Potiphar's best slave, his best servant. He actually is given responsibility over the entire household, which is a pretty big responsibility. I imagine Potiphar was... Well, rather wealthy, had quite an operation going on. So Joseph really is, is doing pretty, pretty good, comparatively speaking, at this point. But it all comes crashing down when Potiphar's wife decides to make a pass at Joseph. Joseph refuses it, and so then she frames Joseph, and now Joseph ends up in jail. Now, at this point in the story, I think that we can, we can start to discern a shift in Joseph. Something inside of him is changing. See, twice now he's been built up and then thrown down. He's built up, he's got the robe, he's got the daddy's favorite, he's got the dreams, and then he's thrown down, sold into slavery. And then he makes, works his way up in Potiphar's household, and then boom, he's back in jail. And so you kind of have this roller coaster thing going on in Joseph's life, and it's not over yet, by the way. But he's in jail, and, and I think that we're starting to see that Joseph's pride is getting chipped away at a little. He makes a friend in jail. This friend is a former cupbearer to the king of Egypt, to the pharaoh. Being a cupbearer was a high-risk reward situation. Like, your job is to drink the king's drink before he drinks it to make sure it's not poisoned. Uh, but on the other hand, you get to live in the palace. So, I mean, you know, risk-reward. But he apparently did something to uh, make... The king angry, so he's in jail. He's with Joseph. He gets to know Joseph, and he has a dream. And he goes to Joseph. He says, can you, can you interpret my dream for me? Remember, Joseph's got like a knack for dreams, doesn't he? Can you interpret my dream? Listen to what Joseph says. It, this time, it's not about what Joseph can do. He says, do not interpretations belong to God. That's a little different than what we'd expect to hear from the 17-year-old Joseph that we first met, isn't it? Do not all interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dream, he says. In other words, he's starting to realize it's not really about me, is it? I think he's being humbled. This is the point of the sermon where I'm going to risk bumping up against the operation game. Some of us have a moment. It's that thing that's happened to you that you did not deserve it's your experience of being thrown into a cistern. That traumatic event that left you upside down. I just want to gently ask, have you considered the fact that perhaps 
God may be able to use that to do something in you. I understand that for some of us here, perhaps in your brain, it's like, you know, like, no, no, preacher. Nope, you're not going to just like, do not justify, do not um, minimize or soften my experience with the idea that God just wanted to teach me something, you know? Like, what a classic preacher move. Look, I'm not trying to suggest that we soften or justify anything. I'm trying to see if God might redeem some part of you through it, though. Because if that can't happen, I'm not sure what the gospel is good for. The gospel says that God himself came into the lowest pit of despair possible. And that he rose from it in victory. And that that victory is available to us as well. Joseph's brothers stripped him, threw him in a cistern, and sold him into slavery. Look, that's horrible. Nothing Joseph could have ever done deserves that. But nevertheless, that experience seems to have done something to Joseph. It seems to have humbled him a little bit. Through it, he gained something he didn't have before. It doesn't justify, it doesn't make it okay, but he gained something he didn't have before. So here... Here's what I think we might call a recipe for forgiveness. If we want to know how can I forgive, I think there's three ingredients that true, genuine forgiveness requires. It's this. Forgiveness requires truth to be spoken, grace to be given, and God to be sovereign. It requires truth to be spoken, grace to be given, and God to be sovereign. I want to start with the third one. God must be sovereign in our lives, I think, for for genuine forgiveness to happen um, because the, the way that we can truly forgive those who cause us pain is, is when we understand that, you know what, my story is just one small strand in a broader tapestry that God is weaving. And, and I think that when we can start to understand that God is sovereign, that there's something bigger going on here, that can help us a little bit. Look, um, I was on a Zoom call with He's my boss, my district superintendent, it's called. Our district just merged with another district, so I've got a new district superintendent. Church bureaucracy, you don't want to hear about that. But we were on a Zoom call, and he was sharing. I really enjoy him. In fact, he's going to speak here uh, next month. His name is Wes. And Wes was sharing about some of the research they've done. They, they wanted to answer the question, why is it that some churches have thrived coming out of COVID, other churches have not? What, what is it about churches that are figuring out how to thrive in this new era that we're in? Uh, versus other the churches that just haven't figured it out, or the pastors and the leaders that are thriving versus those that are like burnt out and quitting and stuff like that. Because something's different. I don't know if you know this. Like something happened, you know, something is different now in the air, like in our psyches, in our spirits and our souls. It's just changed when it comes to, I don't know, being vulnerable, being with people, being out and about and stuff like that. It's different now. Ministry ain't what it was three years ago. I can promise you that. And so what, what, what is it that, that uh, causes some churches to flourish and others not? And, and he gave five things. And one of them was um, there seemed to be some people, there's two ways to view history. You can view history as like, um, well, everything's kind of going down the toilet, uh, but my job is to kind of be a faithful Christian in the midst of it, and we're going to kind of have this outpost on the, on the periphery of society where we're just kind of trying to hold on. You know, I remember last week Joanne talked about uh, teeth, grit, and Christianity. Like, just hold on, grit your teeth, and get through it. 
Like, that's one way you can view things. There's another way, though. You can, you can see everything that's going on, um, and you can wonder at it. I wonder how God's plan of salvation is unfolding through this. I wonder what kind of, interest, I wonder what kind of redemption God's going to bring through this new thing in, in history. Do, do you see history as kind of God's unfolding plan, you know? That doesn't mean everything that happens is God's plan, but do you see it as God weaving or bringing his plan out of it? In some way. And so, so when you're over here, you kind of think you already know the answers. You, you've got everything figured out. You're just try, trying to muscle through it. But over here, you know what? You see stuff like, you know, even when things are hard, you see it with kind of a, a wonder, a curiosity. I, I wonder what God's doing in this, and I wonder how I can be a part of it. I, I wonder what new opportunity there is for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, to like, you know, reach people that are hurting after, after this like massive tra traumagenic event we've had called COVID. Like, I. I people aren't coming to church as much. Like it's, you know, people are just kind of isolated and stuff like that. Like over here, that's like a bummer, you know? That's like, boy, oof, throw up your hands. Over here, it's like, ooh, I wonder what God's doing in there. I wonder how I can help. Those are the people, those are the churches that seem to flourish post-COVID. In other words, it's the people that figured out that maybe God's doing something, you know? I might not be able to see it. I might not like it. It might not even feel good, but maybe there's something happening here and I can be a part of it. What is it, God? There's a curiosity. See, when we realize that my story is really just a part of a much bigger one, and that God is weaving all these things together according to his purposes, then I start to realize that my life, it's not really mine anyway, and I can start to loosen my grip a little bit. That's what's happening to Joseph. The young Joseph we first meet, there's only one thread in this story, it's his, you know? He's starting to see there's something else at work. See, God is what we would call infinitely creative. That means that even when things don't go according to God's plan, uh, you know, because of evil, sin, whatever, God can still bring something redemptive out of it. He can still salvage something out of it. He's infinitely creative. So Joseph interprets this guy's dream, and he says, hey, when you get out of jail, uh, remember me, would you? Like, put in a good word. Sure enough, Joseph's interpretation comes true. He gets out of jail. He's back in his position with the Pharaoh, but he forgets all about Joseph. For two whole years, Joseph languishes in jail until one day, Pharaoh himself has a dream that needs to be interpreted, and none of, none of his guys can do it. And so that's when the cupbearer goes, wait a second, I know a guy. <laughs> and he tells Pharaoh, hey, there's a guy in jail. He interpreted my dream. And so the king calls Joseph to him. And he asks him to interpret his dream. And look how Joseph's language has, has shifted even more. Joseph is completely at the mercy of God. He says, look, at, look what he says. I cannot do it, he says. I cannot do it. Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And sure enough, God gives Joseph an interpretation of the dream. And Pharaoh not only frees Joseph, he promotes him to his number two. Now Joseph's over the entire uh, land and when famine strikes, Joseph is able to save many lives. Like he, he enacts a plan that enables grain to be distributed. And uh, even people from neighboring countries are starting to come uh, to Egypt in order to, get, to purchase grain, and which brings us back to Joseph's family. We don't have time for the whole story, but in the end, his brothers come to Egypt to find grain. Imagine their surprise when they look up and they're like, ah, uh, isn't that Joe? <laughs> 
We, maybe we should have killed him after all. Joseph's in charge of everything with the power to do whatever he pleases. And so naturally, they're scared for their lives, but Joseph is not out for revenge. Instead, he just wants to see his father. He sends them back, says, bring back my father. And Jacob comes to Egypt, and he lives the rest of his days out with all of his sons together. And then when Jacob dies, the brothers are once again scared. They say, oh, Joseph was just being nice to us for daddy. Now he's really going to kill us. And so they go to him and they seek, they beg for his forgiveness. It says, his brothers then came, threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But you know what Joseph does? It says that he weeps. He weeps. We've come full circle here. Joseph's dreams have come true. His brothers are bowing down before him. But the way he receives it is not at all what he would have thought when he was 17. Instead, all he can see is those that he loves. All he can see is the fact that God has been faithful to him. All he can do is cry. Tears of joy of being able to be with his family again. It's remarkable. It doesn't affect Joseph the way it would have affected the younger Joseph. That guy is dead and gone now. Now there's a, a wiser and a humbler Joseph. That guy who was tattling on his brothers, you know, lavishing in his father's favoritism, bragging about his dreams, that guy's gone. He's not there anymore. And this wiser, humbler Joseph knows it's really all about God. It says, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Is it my job to decide your fate? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So when his dreams finally come true, all he can do is give glory to God. And I just think that's, that's really something. But you know, that doesn't mean that God wanted Joseph to suffer. It means that God wanted to bring good out of his suffering. Joseph was able to forgive because he saw the sovereignty of God's hand weaving a new story within his. But that's not the only thing that happened. His brothers also told the truth. Like, there was a moment of reckoning there, right? They, they got down on their faces before him. And that's the second ingredient for forgiveness. We said God must be sovereign. Truth must be spoken, too. In the 1990s, the nation of South Africa was under a series of discriminatory laws called apartheid. It segregated the country based on race, and the system was responsible for many horrendous crimes. But it ended when Nelson Mandela, who's a black man, was elected president of the country, and he was tasked with the difficult job of desegregating a very divided country. The outgoing white administration, who was responsible for so many of these crimes, um, they demanded total amnesty for, for what they'd done. Of course, Mandela and his party were like, mm, no. But they're in a pickle because they also knew that anything could really provoke a bloody civil war. How are we going to ensure justice is done in light of all the horrendous crimes that were done without provoking a civil war? The two parties reached a compromise that, at first blush, doesn't sound like a very good compromise. But their goal was to avert this civil war, and here's what it said. They said, if any of the outgoing white leaders and officers wanted to be granted amnesty for their crimes, they would have to do just one thing. They would have to tell the truth. 
And so they formed the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission led by Bishop Desmond Tutu. Um, and their job was to listen to hundreds of hours of testimony from, from abusers and from victims. And if anyone wanted amnesty for their crimes, what they had, all they had to do was they had to tell the truth of what they did in detail to the satisfaction of the committee. In other words, you don't have to feel sorry for what you did, but you do have to say what you did. And if we think that you're holding back, you're not going to get to walk free. You had to satisfy the committee that you are telling every detail that they want to know about what you did. Now, obviously, lots of people had issues with this. Okay? It meant criminals who committed horrendous acts of racist crimes would walk free. They were going to get off without persecution. Far from a perfect solution. But as time went on, even the strongest critics of the committee started to notice that there was a cathartic power to the truth being told. Abusers were put on the stand and they were forced to tell in detail exactly what they did. And as they did that, the balance of power started to shift as the truth was told for the world to see victims who had suffered in secret for years now had a world weeping with them. Abusers who never faced accountability would now have to live in a world that knew exactly what they did. See, the truth, the truth doesn't necessarily do justice, but it does restore dignity. It restores personhood. I wouldn't advocate for this method of, uh, you know, justice being done all the time. But I do think that it shows us that truth is an essential ingredient for reconciliation. If you've wronged someone, things can't be made right, at least not for you, until you've spoken the truth. Forgiveness requires God to be sovereign, truth to be spoken, and last, grace to be given. What is grace? Grace is a mercy that you don't deserve. The scene at the end of the Joseph story gives me goosebumps. Joseph says to his brothers, he says, don't be afraid. Look, he's got the power to do anything that he wants, but he reassures them instead. He says, don't be afraid. He gives them grace. And it's pretty remarkable, but you know, you and I have a, a resource for grace that Joseph didn't have. We have the cross, the most magnificent display of grace that you could really ever imagine. When the universal and absolute God takes on flesh and becomes obedient unto death on a cross, as Paul writes, I mean, that's not only the paradigm through which we are, it's not only the, the, like the, the way through which we are saved, it is also the paradigm for our lives. It is a model for us to live out the way of Jesus. The cross is the greatest symbol of grace that we could imagine. And so we have a resource that even Joseph didn't have for living out this life of grace. So I want to ask ourselves just two things today. First of all, where do I need to speak truth? And number two, where do I need to give grace? Speaking truth means that you're willing to say what you've done. By the way, it can also mean that if you've been wronged, like you're willing to say how it made you feel. That's maybe your role in speaking the truth if you've been wronged. Sometimes people don't know they did anything wrong until you tell them. Maybe the truth you need to speak is to admit that you're mad at God. <laughs> you know, Joanne mentioned this last week. Like, God doesn't need our forgiveness, right? But there's no question that we can harbor grudges against God. There's no question that we can hold God accountable for things. And this, I mean, 
makes sense, right? Like, if this happened, God, you had the power to stop it. Why wouldn't God stop it? I don't have an answer to that question, in case you're wondering. I don't know. But we can see the fact that God's answer to those things is not to stand off and watch it happen. It's to dive in headfirst into it. And he's got scars to prove it. And so maybe our job is to not so much say, God, why, but say, God, where? God, where are you in this? And when we start to do that, I think we start to see that he's right there with us. And so maybe it's time for you to say, God, I just need to be free from this. And let God off the hook. The God who really just wants to help you heal. Maybe you're blaming yourself for something. Maybe the hardest point of forgiveness for you is is yourself. Maybe you've done something. Maybe the other people have forgiven you, moved on, I don't know. Sometimes the hardest person to forgive is ourselves. And, and so maybe today you need, to, you need to forgive yourself. And Pastor Megan and I have both said this before, but, you know, refusing to forgive yourself is actually a form of pride because when we do that, what we're saying is, you know, Jesus, like your sacrifice, it's good for everyone else. But me, I'm a special case. Not enough for me. And so it's actually a form of pride in a way. Maybe it's time for you to forgive yourself by the grace of God. Maybe you need to give some grace to someone else. If you're like me, you've got a little ledger in your heart, you know? You got a little ledger where you always kind of know, you're keeping tabs, you kind of know who, who's up on who. And maybe it's time to burn the ledger, just like God did for us to cross. It's time to throw out the ledger. So which of these do you need to do today? Do you need to speak truth or give grace? So we have a resource in our discipleship pathway. It's on our website, and it takes you through kind of some of these steps of forgiveness, and it might be helpful for some of us. Just go to tablechurchdsm.org resources and just click on it. It's free. There's a lot of stuff there, um, and maybe it'll, maybe, maybe it'll help. That's our prayer. But there's, there's one more. There's one more act of forgiveness that maybe needs to happen here. Maybe you need to accept God's forgiveness. Maybe you don't know the freedom that comes from knowing that your sin has been wiped clean. The Bible says that he separates our sin as far as the east is from the west. It says that he buries it at the bottom of the ocean floor. Look, that's just the Bible writers reaching for language, language to you know, say, God, it's gone. He forgives you. Do you know how amazing that is? You don't have to do anything. You just have to come before the Lord and ask. And so if you would like to do that today, I want to invite you to do it. Um, I'll pray a prayer. You can pray with me. Look, if you ask for God to forgive you, if you you come to Christ today for that, on your connection card, there's a cross you can circle. I would ask you to circle that cross because it's really important when we make this kind of step uh, that you do it not alone, but you do it with the church, with community, with people that that can walk with you and celebrate with you. And that's all we want to do. That's the only reason why we have you circle that. So there's a cross you can circle. If you're online, there's a box you can check on your connection card. You can just come talk to us too if you'd like. Whatever you want to do, just make sure that we know so that we can take next steps with you. And finally, I know that there's probably some of us who have some deep hurts going on. And I want you to know that this, like we are, our heart is to be a family that lifts one another up. And we have a prayer team that would love nothing more than to pray over you. And that can be however you want it to look. If you want to share what's going on, they will hold it in confidence and they will lift you up in prayer. If you just want to come and say, look, I just need prayer. 
they will pray their hearts out for you. And so they're going to be down, they are down front right now. Um, we got Patrick and we got, okay, six people. Okay, so you guys come on down. Um, they're in a red lanyard and uh, they'll be happy to pray for you as we sing this next song. But please feel free to know that this is a place of grace and safety and love. And uh, all we want to do is, is help you discern God's presence in whatever you're going through. All right. Would you pray with me? Oh, God, today, um, I just pray that what was spoken would not be what I said, but what you say. And that for whoever needs it, Lord, that you would bring out the element of this that's, that's most crucial. And so, God, would you allow us now in this place to be vulnerable before you and for you to do, as we already alluded to in operation, do a little surgery on our hearts. You're the perfect surgeon. You're the perfect physician who can take care of exactly what needs to be done. And so, Lord, as I stop talking, may you start, I pray. Holy Spirit, move. Have your way among us and bring the healing power and love and grace that we need in your name.